Well, good morning. I think it's still morning. I don't know. Hey, uh, my name is Trey Dove, and I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Hutto Bible. In case you are new, welcome. Just a quick question. How many of you, when the band started leading us in Everlasting God, were instantly transported back to 2006? Anybody? Amazing, amazing. I was too, and I wasn't even a Christian in 2006. So I don't even know how that happened, but it's like every time they lead us in it, I'm instantly like, whoa, it's the early 2000s again. This is crazy. So that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. We are continuing this morning through the book of Daniel. And so we arrive today at Daniel chapter 8. And before we get into the nitty gritty of Daniel chapter 8, I I do think it's important to remember where uh, we've been through this book. In particular, you know, the first six chapters of Daniel uh, are really about Daniel's life and some of the events that he had to go through while living as an exile in Babylon, his faithfulness to the Lord. And it covers a large span of time, just those six chapters. But he spent the majority of his life living as an exile in Babylon. He was taken captive in Jerusalem as a young boy. He was stripped from his family. And when he was brought to Babylon, they tried to indoctrinate him along with all the other Jewish youth. Um, And Daniel, over like the span of many, many years, has seen kings come and kings go. He's seen nations rise and nations fall. He's interpreted dreams. He's dealt with fiery furnaces, and he's dealt with a lion's den, in fact. Again and again and again, though, his loyalty was put to the test, and again and again he has stood firm on his convictions. Like Daniel remained faithful to Yahweh, to God, and Yahweh has helped him to do so. He's helped him. God has helped him to remain faithful. Again, this is the theme of the book of Daniel, that God stands firm with those who stand firm for him, right? Now, last week, we got into chapter 7, and this is the first time a dream, I'm sorry, this isn't the first time a dream is mentioned in the book of Daniel. In fact, if you remember, in chapters 2 and 4, Daniel was called in to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then in chapter 5, he was brought in to interpret Belshazzar's vision, um, we'll call it that, where he saw the hand writing on the wall. So he's notorious for being the guy who in these situations you bring him in. But in chapter 7, Pastor Mike taught last week, Daniel receives his first vision and it was a doozy, right? And in Daniel chapter 8, he receives another vision two years after the one that we looked at last week. Now, Before we get into the vision itself, though, I do want to ask you this question, and I actually want you to consider it. Don't just look at me, but think through this question, okay? If you could see into the future, what would you want to see? Like, what what would you want to see? What would you want a glimpse of? Would you be tempted to, like, if you have kids, would you be curious to some degree, like, who are my kids going to marry? Are my kids going to get married? Like, what kind of stress are they going to put me through before we find the one for my kids, right? How much heartache, pain, you know, how many times are we going to have to load the shotgun? I have a daughter. I don't have a shotgun, though. So um, maybe I'll borrow one. There's plenty to go around, I'm sure. So who are my kids going to marry? Or if you're single, if you're single, perhaps you're like, well, I get married. Like, will the Lord afford me that grace to get married, to have a spouse? Maybe if your kids are are getting older, you're wondering, am I ever going to have grandkids? Like, will I get to see my grandbabies? How many grandbabies? Will I get to meet them? Like, what? Like, will I have that? Will the Lord give me that grace? Or uh, maybe you're thinking, you know what? I I just want to know if my team's ever going to win the Super Bowl. 
or the World Series or the World Cup or whatever. Like, like I'm kind of curious. Like, are the Chiefs going to win the Super Bowl every year? Because I really hope not. I'm kind of over it. Or the Cubs, are they ever going to win the World Series again? Or am I going to have to wait 100 years? I don't have 100 years left. So, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you're wondering if the boots you bought in college are going to make it back around, right? Or maybe they've done it once and you're like, will they do it again? I'd love to see and find out. Maybe you'd be curious to know how and when your life will end. Maybe not. I mean, what would you do with the information? If you could look into the future and see, what would you do with the information you received? How would it change the way you went about your business? How would it change the decisions you made? Or, or would it change anything at all for you? Like for those of you who know Debbie Lacerdo, um, she was on staff at our church for many, many years. She was wonderful. She's still wonderful. But um, one of our, the greatest joys uh, when Debbie Lacerdo was on staff was seeing her get spooked by something because one, she spooked really easily and two, her reactions to being spooked were amazing. Like it wasn't just like a, oh, oh, you scared me. It was like she would fall on the ground and roll. And I'm not, that's not hyperbole. Like that's legitimately like she would like, like it was a cartoon. And so there was one time Bobby stuck this, we had this weird life-sized wooden like mannequin making its way around the office. It's a long story, backstory. We won't get into it. But Bobby put it into the women's bathroom and Debbie Lacerdo walks in, flips on the light and opens the door and sees this thing just standing in the mirror and goes, oh, and like falls against the wall and was like, for like five minutes. And it was amazing. And it's like, okay, what would Debbie Lacerdo have done if she knew that Bobby was going to pull that prank? What would Debbie Lacerdo have done if she knew that Bobby was going to put the same mannequin in the same bathroom four hours later, and she was going to walk in and find it and respond in the exact same way? Would it have changed anything about how she went about her day, right? And so the point is, how might this information, if you could see into the future, how might it change the way you live? Now, what if you received a vision of the future and the events in that vision stretched beyond your lifetime? Like, what if you received a vision of events that stretched beyond your lifetime and they were bleak? Like, like what if the vision detailed events that involved your great-great-grandchildren and they were suffering? Or what if, what if it involved the church that you love? Maybe you love this church and you're excited about our new home that we're, we're kind of moving towards. Maybe you're excited. What if you received a vision of that new home burning to the ground 100 years from now? Like, what would you do with that information? Well, that's the type of vision Daniel receives in Daniel chapter 8. It's a vision of the future, but a future that, that extends beyond his lifetime. And in fact, at the end of the vision, Daniel hears from the angel Gabriel uh, in verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that's been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And so this vision, it's bleak, and Daniel, uh, he, he experiences this, like, just, I mean, you're, we're going to get into it, but it's, it's clear, like, this is not for the faint of heart. And so we get into verse 1 of chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And so the structure of chapter 8 is actually really straightforward, thankfully, because it's about the only thing that's straightforward in this chapter. But um, the way it's broken up is verses 1 through 14. This is what Daniel sees. Verses 15 through 26, 
Daniel receives an interpretation from the Lord about this vision. And so, for now, Daniel finds himself transported, not literally, but in terms of what he sees, he's been transported to the Ulai Canal in Susa. Now, this location would have been about 220 miles east of Babylon and 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, which would locate it in, like, today's, like, southwestern Iran. Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram was charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." And so Daniel, he looks up and he, he gets oriented to kind of where he's located in this vision and he sees a ram just charging and thrashing in every which direction. And this ram's got two massive horns, one just a little taller than the other, and it came up last, like it came up after the first. And notice that there's not, a, there's not another beast. There's no other beast in all of creation or creature that could contend with this ram. So he just does whatever he pleases. That is, until the next creature Daniel sees arrives at the canal. Verse 5, Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And so Daniel is is captivated by this magnificent ram until suddenly his gaze, his attention is diverted and redirected to this goat that comes from the west. And this goat is described as having a conspicuous horn in the center of his head. And he moves with the finesse and agility of the wind. And in one swift strike, he takes down the ram. The goat slays the ram with his horn. Verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there there, uh, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper." And so in this vision, Daniel now sees this tremendous goat increasing in strength and power and aggression and influence, presumably. And just at the moment when the goat is at like his peak of greatness, the horn in the middle of his head that he used to slay the ram, it breaks and in its place grow four new horns. And then on one of those Four horns is like a little horn. And, and what's interesting is like the vision shifts, like the attention shifts away from the, the goat and the horns to the one little horn that has since grown up. 
And Daniel, uh, we see in this vision, it describes some ominous detail and, and um, some ominous, like the works and the magnitude of this little horn, like what this little horn is going to represent and what's going to happen with this little horn. It's, it's uh, again, it's bleak. In fact, uh, when Daniel is recording this or, or recounting this, he uses language that would have been really familiar, especially with the people of God, with the Israelites, language that would have caused their ears to perk up and their imaginations to begin to wander. I mean, he, he's talking about the regular burnt offering. He's talking about the sanctuary. And we're going to come back to what all this means in a moment, but then let's look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And without warning or introduction, Daniel hears a voice, and that voice says, how long? How long? If you're someone who loves the book of Psalms, and you love to spend a lot of time in the book of Psalms, maybe Psalm 13 is coming to mind, where David opens it by saying, how long, O Lord? Only this isn't the voice of David, it's the voice of a holy one, an angel, now, if you're wondering, okay, what is all of this supposed to mean? Am I supposed to just understand this vision like right off the bat? Well, the answer is no, you're, you're probably not, and you're in good company because even Daniel, the dream interpreter of Babylon, the one filled with the spirit of a holy God, he's left kind of scratching his head and he needs some assistance from the Lord to interpret this and understand this vision. And so verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood and when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And so Daniel hears two voices, right? One of them, uh, God instructing Gabriel, the angel, to now come and give Daniel this interpretation. Gabriel's being the second voice. And Gabriel approaches Daniel and Daniel falls. He falls on his face in reverence and fear. And, and Gabriel's like, get up. Come on, get up. In fact, this happens throughout Scripture. Uh, Think about the Apostle John in the book of Revelation as well, falling on his face before an angel, and the angel saying, no, 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 come on, get up, get up. And when Daniel gets up, after being instructed to arise, he's told that this vision is for the time of the end. Now, in our minds, we, I think, instantly go to end times. We think eschatology, we think the end of human history, when Jesus comes back, but Every scholar that I've read, nearly every scholar is in agreement that that's not what's in view here. In fact, some have have taken this phrase to mean kind of there's two main directions. There might be some other options, but I'm just going to give you the two that I've encountered the most. One is that this is in reference to the end of the time in which Israel was under God's judgment for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. That's kind of the first. The second is that it's the end of this period of time in which God is pouring out his wrath upon the pagan nations for their mistreatment of God's people. I don't actually know. However, 
it's clear that this isn't in reference to the end times per se, as much as it's in reference to a time that's not going to be anytime soon. Like it's not anytime soon. In fact, that's why he says, hey, seal it up. This is for a later time. And so we get into verse 19. What does the vision mean? The interpretation. This is going to be clear as mud. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you just to kind of track with me. I'm not going to put all of the passage up here or all of the text on the screen, but I'm going to go through the interpretation quickly. The, in verse 20, uh, Gabriel, and he tells Daniel, Hey, the ram with two horns, this is the kings of Media and Persia. In verse 21, he says the goat represents Greece. And, and that first horn is this first king. Now that reference to a first king has been understood unanimously to be Alexander the Great. He ascended to the throne as king of Macedonia in 336 BC at just 20, 21 years old. And Sinclair Ferguson writes of Alexander, the vision describes the totality and the speed of his conquest of the nations prior to his early debauched death at the age of 33. A general of the Greek army at just 21, he had virtually conquered the world by the age of 26. And so You've got the goat representing Greece, that horn presumably representing Alexander the Great, and, and Alexander's reign, while it was short, is, is still remembered throughout the ages for his success in war and his ability to transform the Western world with Greek culture and religion. But nonetheless, the vision continues, and you've got the little horn, again, presumably Alexander the Great, is broken, and four new horns pop up in its place. Well, when Alexander the Great died, he didn't have an heir to take his place on the throne as king of Greece. And so you have, instead, some of his generals who now assume the role, and the nation's essentially kind of split into four kingdoms. You've got Syria, Egypt, Asia Minor, and Macedonia, or Greece. Again, each ruled by one of Alexander's army generals. And then you've got this conspicuous little horn that pops up, right? It's described in the text as a king of bold face who understands riddles. Well, the historical consensus around this little horn, this king, is that it represents Antiochus IV or as he so affectionately called himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. That word Epiphanes, that title, literally means God revealed or God manifested. And so what did he think about himself? Who did he think he was? Well, he really believed that in some way he was sort of the Imago Dei of Zeus, the Greek god, that he was like Zeus incarnate to some degree. Everybody else thought he was a madman, but he thought very highly of himself. But by every historical account that I've encountered, at least Antiochus was ruthless, he was cunning, he was arrogant, and determined to see the full paganization of Israel and the eradication of all things pertaining to the Jewish religion and culture. And so the way Gabriel describes uh, Antiochus in verse 24 is that his power will be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. 
And so the most troubling words, I think, spoken thus far to Daniel come right here from Gabriel. While Daniel may not know who this king is, he may not even be alive during his reign, he does know this, that this king will oppose the people of God and he will stiffen his neck against God himself in opposition, the prince of princes. Now, if there is, if there is even the slightest word of comfort to Daniel here, it's, it's at the end when he says, he shall be broken, but by no human hands, because kings and kingdoms and nations and rulers, they're going to rise and they're going to fall, and it's all going to be in accordance with the sovereign will of God. Like he exalts the humble and brings low the proud, but before that day comes for the people of God, it's going to be devastating. Dale Ralph Davis uh, referred to Antiochus's assault on Israel as a paganization program. He said it began with the forceful overthrow of the high priesthood. He gained control of the high priesthood in 169 BC, and then he took money from the temple treasury to fund his war efforts in Egypt. Now, if you're wondering, well, how did it go? It didn't go well for him because Rome was also on the rise, and Rome was like the big giant that Antiochus just could not get past. And so he gets booted out of Egypt when Rome comes in, and and in his pride and frustration, he turns back to Jerusalem and goes all in on this paganization program. And so without warning, he returns and in around 167 BC, seeks to eradicate the Jewish way of life. Now the book of 2 Maccabees, it's an apocryphal book, which means it was written in between kind of the closing of the Old Testament and the the, uh, opening of the New Testament. So there's 400 years uh, in between the, the two testaments, and in there is uh, the book of First and Second Maccabees, and it's really helpful for some historical insight, and, and so it actually details these some of these events and what Antiochus was doing in Israel. It tells of Jews being forced to abandon the Torah and the laws of God that have been handed down from generation to generation. It tells how they were forced to bring their offerings and sacrifices to the temple and lay them on the altar of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. It tells of unclean animals being slain on the altar and their blood filling the floors of the temple and Gentiles filling the temple and turning it into a den of prostitution and debauchery. It it tells of them being forced to abandon the Sabbath, to abandon the festivals that they have celebrated generation after generation in celebration of what God's done and His faithfulness to their people. It even to put themselves, like to identify themselves as a Jew publicly would put them in harm's way. In fact, another historian recounts of these monthly checks that were happening throughout the city where literally they, like they would go from home to home and if they found any semblance of Torah law, a scroll that might have had anything to do with the law written on it, or if, if they found that you had a, a baby boy, a son, and he was circumcised, they would kill you instantly. And so Israel remained under this idolatrous, demonic even, stronghold until around 166 BC when Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes in Jerusalem and he won. And in Daniel's vision, there's this foretelling when they said, how long, how long? And he 
received this, he heard 2,300 morning and evenings. There's two different ways to kind of interpret that. Both of them seem really good. If it's 2,300 days, one single days, then you've got seven years. If it happens to be uh, in regards to the sacrifices in the morning and the evening, you have three and a half years. Um, I'm leaning the three and a half, but you could persuade me otherwise. But here's what happened. In the span of three and a half years, the beginning of that three and a half years, Antiochus began his paganization program. And at the end of those three and a half years, Judas Maccabeus and his revolt succeeded and kicked Antiochus out and reclaimed and restored the temple in 2300 morning and evening regular sacrifices. Now you can imagine that Daniel receives all of this and the final thing he's told by Gabriel, again, is seal it up. It refers to many days from now. Okay, well, how many days from now, Gabriel? Hundreds of years from now. Hundreds. Well beyond your lifetime. Now, here's where you might hate me. If you're looking for a clear sort of like application to just jump off the page where you're like, okay, but how does this apply to my day-to-day right now? I'm just going to tell you, it's just not there in Daniel 8. It's not obvious. It's not right there. It's not going to jump off and you're going to go, oh, let me highlight this verse. Love that. Put it on a shirt to remind me or whatever. But that doesn't mean that this passage is not beneficial for the people of God today. In fact, I believe it is in a really remarkable and wonderful way because I I genuinely believe that this reveals something about the way that God cares for his people in regards to suffering. And here's the first thing. It's that God is gracious. God is gracious to prepare his people for suffering. Like I found myself wondering this week, maybe you are right now, like why would God show Daniel this? Like Daniel's not even going to live it. Why not wait maybe a few hundred years until you get a little closer and then reveal it to the people then? Like why give it to him? And I just, I think it's because God is so remarkably gracious. Like it's a grace to know that my suffering did not catch the Lord off guard. It's a grace to know that my suffering did not surprise him and it did not escape his sovereign grip. It's a grace to know that my suffering, as intense as it may be, has an expiration date. Like what a gift in the midst of one's own suffering to know how the story ends. Like what a gift to know that while nations rise and kingdoms wage war, even against the people of God at times, there remains one who holds all of human history firmly in his grasp and not a millisecond goes by that he is not sovereignly guiding towards his purposes and for his glory. Like there's no king that's ascended to their throne without the predetermined yes from God and no king has outlasted the prince of hosts. And so God speaks with the knowledge of future events that only he has, and he graciously prepares his people for what's going to come. In fact, Jesus did this in his own ministry. In John 15, he's preparing his disciples for when they get to Jerusalem. And he says, hey, just so you know, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm I'm going to be, I'm going to be betrayed. Right? John 15, I'm sorry, he tells his folks, I'm getting ahead of myself. John 15, he tells his disciples, hey, they're going to hate you. These folks are going to hate you. You know why they're going to hate you? The world is going to hate you because it hated me first. It hated me first. The world is diametrically just opposed to me because of sin. They're going to hate you because they hated me first. Okay, well, Jesus, why would you tell, his, why would you tell your, your disciples that? Why can't it just be a surprise for them? Well, it could be, right? But the thing is, I, 
I don't think he just wants to prepare his people for suffering. I think he's, he wants them to know that he's going to be faithful to preserve his people in suffering too. Like just after Jesus in John 15 tells them, the world's going to hate you. He then in John 16 verse 1 says, hey, by the way, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. Like Jesus, for telling of the suffering his disciples will endure, for identifying with him was to ensure them, I will preserve you through your suffering. It was to, not to cause them to like turn in on themselves in fear, but rather to, to embolden them and to stir confidence in his people. Because again, again, it's, this is not, nothing has escaped the firm grip of God's sovereign hand. And here's what I believe, that he's not going to allow me to fall away in the midst of it. Like when I'm in the throes of it, he's not going to let me fall away. And then the third thing is that God refines his people through suffering. Like the Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter, to Christians who were walking through some suffering, and, and unfortunately for them, the days weren't getting brighter. As they looked on the horizon, it's not like, oh, it's, it's getting better for us soon. And this is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, detailing some of his, his own personal suffering, in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so death is at work in us, but life in you. And then verse 16, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the overwhelming refrain of Scripture could be summed up like this. God does not waste the suffering of his people. To make it more personal, God does not waste your suffering. Now, I know there's a way to hear what I just said and think. I, I know that's objectively true, like on a macro level, historical, you know, the, the, the arc of human, like I get that that's objectively true and I affirm that and I say yes and amen, but when it comes to what I'm walking through right now in this moment, when I'm in the throes of it, that truth just doesn't necessarily connect. It feels sort of removed. And what I want to say is, um, man, it is... It is absolutely true on a personal level, on an individual level. Like 
Like God is gracious to prepare you for your suffering. He's faithful to preserve you in the midst of your suffering. And he works to refine you through that suffering. Now, whether that's persecution because you identify yourself with Jesus, and we know that that's becoming more prevalent in our current cultural kind of climate, but, but, but even if it's just like, man, you are just in the throes of life, and you, it's like you're just getting punched in the mouth over and over and over and over again, and you just want it to stop. A diagnosis, a lost loved one, an unexpected death. I mean, you, you, this world is full of tragedy and hardship and suffering. And if you haven't been punched in the mouth by life, just wait, it's coming. I promise you. In fact, in the, the letter to the Romans, Paul says, you know, all of creation actually groans in anticipation for the day that Christ returns and renews all things. And so sin has tarnished the cosmos and life is marked, unfortunately, and most memorably by suffering. And if you're not in it now, just wait. But my point is, it's not a waste. And God intends to use it to produce in you and in all of his people a faith that expresses itself in song, even when you can't conceive of a reason to sing. A faith that expresses itself in love to Jesus. An anticipation of the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that enables one to lift their eyes to heaven longing for things yet to be seen. An, an, an eternal inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and that is even now being kept in heaven for those who are in Christ. And I don't, I don't want to sound like an escapist in any kind of way. Like We're just like, let's just get out of here. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I'm talking about this faith that just kind of from within is cultivated and it makes you just want to cry out sincerely, come Lord Jesus, and then, and then it enables you from your guts to actually sing out because you have hope. And I can just, I can stand here and I can say this with confidence this morning because I believe in a God who suffered. Like Isaiah writes of the Messiah that he would be a man of sorrows, that he would be acquainted with grief, our grief, that he would bear our burdens, that he would carry our sorrow, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that his chastisement would bring peace and his wounds would provide healing. And in the final days of Jesus' ministry, this is what I was jumping to earlier on, in the final days of his ministry, as they're heading to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples, I just want you to know what to expect when we get there. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mistreated by the scribes by the Sadducees, by the chief priests, and then I'm going to die on the cross. And on that cross, when Christ died, he took our sins upon himself and he suffered. And then he rose on the third day. Amen. And it was through his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection that Jesus, yes, he made forgiveness of sin a reality and reconciliation to God a reality. Amen. And we're thankful for that. And also, he entered into our suffering and overcame death to provide for his people the hope of a brighter day. One that, like for Daniel, might not actually come in this lifetime, but one that will most assuredly come. And so if your faith is in Christ, if you've placed it in Jesus this morning, you can rest assured of this truth. Your suffering is not wasted. But even now, God's using it to produce in you 
an eternal weight of glory, a faith that enables you to lift your eyes to the heavens and sing. And we can do so knowing, again, that all of human history is held in his grasp, even down to the millisecond. He's guiding it all towards his ultimate end where sin is is eradicated from the cosmos and the, the people of God get to be in his presence. Death is no longer the reality. We just get to be with him forever and ever and ever. And it's a grace It's a grace to know that suffering is coming because it always carries with it for the people of God the promise that it's not going to last forever. In fact, it can't. And so that's not how the story ends for the people of God. In fact, if you're in Christ, that's not how the story ends for you. So let me pray for us. We'll take communion together. God, thank you. Thank you for this incredible, incredible grace a grace that saves us from sin, a grace that reconciles us to you, Lord, and a grace that gives us this hope that our our story will not and cannot end with suffering, but it ends with the hope of a brighter eternity with you. Lord, I just want to pray now, even again, just for the people in our church who are here this morning, who are walking through it, who feel, who feel in a real way the effects of sin and brokenness in the cosmos. God, would you lift them today, lift their eyes? Would you stir up in them a faith that enables them to sing with joy inexpressible because of what you've done and the future, the promise that you've made. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we worship a God who doesn't just know what suffering is, but experienced it himself and overcame it and gave us the hope that we now have. Lord, we thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.